Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today on our episode, I have a special guest joining us. We have Dr. Al Lula, and Al is an emergency physician, an EMS physician uh, with UT Houston, and he's been gracious enough to join us and talk to us about a topic that we've honestly hit on, I guess, sort of peripherally in several podcasts so far but we've never had a dedicated discussion of ems care and the ems approach to traumatic brain injury we've talked about this within airway management we've talked about this within you know airway patency and protection within push dose epinephrine within you know trauma scene management so there's a lots lots of places where traumatic brain injury ha- have been touched on on the podcast and you're welcome to go back and listen to those episodes but today we wanted to really get into uh, some of the recent EMS developments within the care and the importance of traumatic brain injury and talk about how we can probably do a little better but before we get into the details I'll tell the listeners a little bit about yourself your uh, role in EMS and sort of your approach when you're educating medics about the care of TBI, and then we'll get into some more detail. Uh, Thanks for having me, Casey. Um, So yeah, really excited to talk about this topic. It's something that uh, I find super interesting and fascinating. Um, So like you said, uh, I'm an ER physician, EMS doc uh, down in the Houston area. Uh, I'm involved with EMS education and some medical direction uh, activities down there. you know, I love, I love research. I love TBI stuff. Um, I'm really into the QA, QI side of things. And, uh, you know, I'm always trying to find ways to integrate some of this stuff and all the research that's going around TBI into EMS and, and, and on the quality side of things too. So that's sort of been things that I've been thinking about and working on over the past, uh, I'd say, year or so. Um, I've had some really great mentors who, who have been a part of some really big TBI studies uh, sort of really got me off the ground. So it's a pretty, pretty interesting and exciting area. Um, I think for me, the, the biggest thing about, about TBI is uh, I guess I didn't initially realize how much of a difference that pre-hospital interventions make in terms of TBI outcomes. We always talk about TBI from this perspective of sort of almost like futility. It's like, oh man, they're, they're posturing, their pupils are blown, they're, they're gonna aspirate. And I think a lot of folks feel like there's not a lot we can do for these people in the pre-hospital setting. And you know, some studies, uh, particularly the EPIC trial, which we'll talk a lot about, uh, some of the stuff that has come out over the past couple of years has really changed the landscape and really change sort of our frame of reference on how we manage TBI. And I just, I think, you know, before we go into the details, I think the big takeaway point that I, that I want people to take away from this, from our conversation is that, um, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can transfer the patient to, you know, the most state-of-the-art level one trauma center. If they've got dead neurons when they get there, um, there's not a lot that we can do in terms of 
surgical management, ICU, critical care management. I mean, we want these people to eventually have a chance to go back home, to go back to their families, to have some sort of quality of life. And when we look at how long your neurons have, we're talking about four minutes. And the person that's gonna have the biggest chance to make an impact on that on, in those first four minutes is gonna be our EMS field providers. So I just really wanna stress that point uh, and, and sort of inspire folks and, and give people a sense that, you know, this is not as futile as we thought it was. And there's actually stuff that we can do that's really gonna make a difference. It's a really excellent point. I'm gonna take two pieces out of that and expound a little bit. Number one, the futility feeling, I, I think, probably extends into the emergency physician and the emergency department realm as well. And that is we see these folks, we see blown pupils, we see posturing, we concentrate on things like you know, calculating the GCS and uh, this, this person's hosed. And we really don't have a good knowledge base as to what happens at week one, week two, week three. And that's where some of this data really comes in because Epic Trial specifically and some of the other offshoots are looking at morbidity, mortality, and neurointact survival. And this is exactly the way that we look at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. What we want is these patients who bang their head and roll over MVCs and falls from heights. We want them to go home and to be able to function with their family, at least in some functional level. And some of this data translates directly to that in that we have a, a, a huge impact. And you mentioned quality and quality from the EMS side. And I know that for the medics listening, the MCHD medics and a lot of the, you know, the, the folks out there with boots on the ground doing the work every day that aren't in quality roles, rightfully don't always necessarily care what we're doing on the quality side. But the important part is that we are watching these charts, we're watching for areas to improve, and we're putting steps in place protocols into place checklists into place so that we're monitoring how we care for these patients because you do as the medic out there taking care of these folks want to know the outcomes right so it's our job to maximize dot i's and cross t's from a protocol standpoint put safety nets in place so we're watching for charts where we can improve on and lastly and most importantly doing better each day because i don't know what ems system you're in out there whether you're here at MCHD, we're working hard, but I don't know that anybody's where they wanna be from an outcomes standpoint, as far as getting good outcomes consistently for the medics so that you can feel your value and feel part of the team. So you mentioned Epic. We can't go too deeply into a pre-hospital TBI discussion and not mention Epic. So let's give the listeners a quick and dirty synopsis. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but for today's episode, we're not gonna drown you with uh, interquartile ranges and confidence intervals and p-values, but quick and dirty, where was EPIC done, what do they look at, and what was the take home of the original study? Sure, um, so EPIC has now, I think, been out for, for a few years, and it's definitely, I think, changed the landscape in terms of pre-hospital TBI management. Um, so it was the largest study that to date, to my knowledge, that's ever been done on, on pre-hospital TBI uh, patients. Um, so this was done over at the University of Arizona, and uh, they utilized a, you know, a state trauma registry where they were able to sort of follow some of these patients. Um, and I think this was back in 2018 or 2017, somewhere, somewhere around there. I was going to say five years to try to be safe. Yeah. 
Um, so the the study design was sort of a, a they call it sort of a before and after study was sort of how it was set up. So there's sort of the the uh, pre-intervention arm of the study in the beginning. Then they made an intervention, and then they sort of saw what happened in the post-intervention cohort. Um, and so pre-intervention was just five years. They basically just sort of saw what was happening to TBI patients with what they were already doing. Um, and then uh, basically they made an intervention or they instituted sort of protocols in terms of the management of TBI, and then they saw what those outcomes were for those patients. Um, so I think there was, uh, you know, there was thousands of medics that were involved in this, in this study. I think there was 130 different EMS agencies. It was, it was, it was pretty big time in terms of how many folks were, were involved, um, in this. And, uh, in terms of the implementation phase of the study, so, you know, the, 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 the sort of the investigators of the study called the, call it the H bombs the sort of the three things that they really targeted. So for the past many decades, there's some pre-hospital research and TBI research that really emphasized this idea of um, preventing and treating um, hypotension, hypoxia, and in patients who were getting uh, positive pressure ventilation to avoid hyperventilation. Um, I think one of the, the key points uh, of, that, of this whole thing is, is not just treatment, but it's actually prevention. And that's something that I think uh, is one of the key takeaways from the study, and they sort of really address that and try to hammer that home, hammer home that point, that when we prevent these things, uh, and when we identify these things earlier, uh, patients are going to do better. Um, and so ultimately what they saw is, is after they instituted these protocols where they aggressively um, looked for or, or prevented and treated uh, those three H-bombs, um, the patients with severe TBI, so they looked at patients with moderate, severe, and critical TBI. The moderate people, you know, those folks probably weren't sick enough where these interventions were really going to make much of a difference. The critical patients were probably extremely ill and no matter what we did, weren't going to make much of a difference. But the severe patients with severe TBI, those are the patients that, you know, they found, a, you know, uh, basically significant improvement in survival. Um, I think off the top of my head, I think it was twofold uh, improvement in survival uh, when they looked at their adjusted odds ratios. Um, and that's a big deal. Twofold, and, two times. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about drastic changes in your protocols. We're not talking about complex procedural maneuvers. We're not talking about you know, video laryngoscopy implementation across the state. We're just talking about anticipation, which I, I'm going to come back to, but we want to hit on over and over is this is not just recognition. This is anticipation that if you have a severe TBI, somebody with a, if you want to go, you know, to GCS, Samutha GCS is six. It should come as no shock or surprise that that patient may be hypotensive and may be hypoxic in our care. Yeah. So uh, the, Two-fold mortality increase with simple anticipation, recognition, and there was no, you know, medication and assisted intubation piece that was plugged into Epic. This was just preventing hypoxia yeah. with a BVM, yeah. with, a, with a nasal cannula apneic oxygenation, with uh, nasal pharyngeal airways, with positioning, with chin lift jaw thrust. If those things prevent your hypoxia, then you've won from an Epic standpoint. You know, that... 
the other piece that was interesting to me in the initial piece of the epic study, and this was one of those duh things that I thought, didn't we know this? Didn't some, did, wasn't this reported somewhere else somewhere? Was the significance and the severity of mortality worsening when you had both hypoxia and hypotension? So when you add, when you add the, the H bombs together, it's not even additive. It's 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 uh, worse. Oh yeah, so way, way worse. And um, there is there is you know uh, nothing else that I have seen in in sort of looking at the pre-hospital literature, something like this where you know a single episode, just one reading of a pulse ox that's low, eighty-five percent in a TBI patient, eighty percent just once is associated with a threefold increase in mortality. Um, I mean, that's just like, uh, it, it, it just sort of, I think, really puts into perspective um, how sensitive the brain is to just extremely minor sort of insults. And, and that's sort of what this is all about, right? It, it's that you have the primary insult, right? The bad TBI that happened but there's secondary insults that, that are going to harm this patient that we can actually address uh, in the field that are going to make a big difference. And that's their blood pressure. That's their, that's their oxygenation. That's their ventilation, right? And so I think the most important thing that I want people to take away from this is that TBI is a – management of TBI involves a degree of resuscitation and sort of an approach just like you resuscitate patients who are septic, just like you res resuscitate trauma patients. We have all these time-sensitive things like stroke and STEMI and all this stuff. I feel like we should be attacking TBI with pretty much the same degree uh, of aggressiveness when it comes to resuscitating those patients in the field. And not necessarily with complex methods, just good basic airway, foundational airway maneuvers, IV access, whether we need you know, fluids or vasopressors or you know, if you're in a system with, with blood products or whole blood there was no delineation between how we fixed the blood pressure or how we prevented hypotension. There was no delineation between how we fixed oxygenation or how we prevented hypoxia. This was a very simple and elegant solution. And that yeah. is a single blood pressure, less than 90 was the cutoff here, a single oxygen saturation level of less than 90 in the ED or in the EMS setting these were these were killers so prevent it get your access get them positioned properly be aggressive up front when you have a patient with a gcs of six because i was right you can't change the fact that they rolled their vehicle but if you don't position them properly if you don't put your mps in place you don't do a good chin lift jaw thrust apply good bvm you know two hand mass seal you know use your superglottic airways intubate if that's in your protocols and appropriate for the patient but if you don't see that that patient's got risk for hypoxia and risk for hypotension then you're already behind the eight ball let's talk about the third one of those h-bombs a little bit and i know this myth still is out there it's what i was you probably were never taught this i'm old enough to uh remember being in the neurointensive care uh, back uh, well over a decade ago in the early 2000s and turning up the rate on the vent for TBIs and jacking the the uh, uh, CO2 down in the in the 20s, you know, and the idea that if we hyperventilate these folks, that it's neuroprotective. That was my practice during my IC rotations. 
we found out on into 2010, 2015, that that's not only not protective, it's probably uh, deleterious. So mention that one for a second, because I know there's folks out there that'll still say, "Well, bag fast. We want to, you know, we want to get their end title down. We want to, we want to hyperventilate." Not a good idea, correct? A hundred percent agree. I think Epic was extremely clear on that. That hyperventilation ultimately kills patients. Um, and yeah, so this has always been, I think, you know, up until the late, late 90s, this was something that was always very much taught and, and very much part of standard practice. And, you know, the, the idea is, is that um, if you hyperventilate somebody, that you're basically going to cause some cerebral vasoconstriction. And as a result, their blood flow to the brain is going to drop off a little bit and their ICP is going to go down. I understand the theory, but like a lot of things that are theoretical, they ended they don't end up panning out the way that we think they were that they would. And ultimately, I mean, I think looking at it now, it, it makes sense, right? It's like if you're gonna cut off or decrease blood flow to the brain, ultimately those patients are gonna are gonna do worse. And and so Epic was uh, extremely clear on on sort of avoiding hyperventilation at all costs. Um, they they set you know for patients that were obviously getting positive pressure ventilation, they set a target of 35 to 45. Uh, in terms of their end tidal CO2. Um, and, you know, I'm sure this has sort of been talked about uh, a lot, I think, over the past couple of years is that, um, you know, your adrenaline's pumping. Uh, this is a high stress situation. And oftentimes, you know, we don't even recognize uh, when we are hyperventilating these patients. Uh, like, we're, I'm not even talking about like, Hyperventilating, hyperventilating them to prevent herniation. I'm just saying, even when we're just trying to just hypervent, just trying to bag them normally, we don't even realize that we that we're actually overventilating these patients. And so, I think that having sort of awareness of that, um, you know, telling your partner, somebody else around, hey, we got to keep a really close eye on this, just because we've secured the airway, that doesn't mean that you know all everything's going to go good. We can still cause some damage if we're not really being mindful of, of sort of the ventilation that we're delivering to this patient. Sure, and for the MCHD listeners out there, I'm not hoarse, but I've said this till I'm uh, figuratively hoarse, and that is you got to mind your waveform and your waveform is going to be your key not only for confirmation but it's going to be your key in TBIs for management going forward and we don't want that end title to be less than 35 and that's something that should be within our checklist within our goals so if you're the in charge or you're the district chief on scene you may not be the one actually holding the bag but somebody needs to have that monitor assignment however we role assign that can go a hundred different ways but we're going to like i said be jacked in that situation and somebody's probably going to be bagging too fast and too deeply and the risk is there to drop that in title 30 and what we know from the conglomeration of epic data is that small missteps or what we would consider small missteps what in my ed care i'm like oh man that in title 30 slow down a second and you think well that was only 30 seconds that was only 45 seconds of hypocarbia eh, who cares well these little missteps what we consider small missteps single hypoxic episodes single hypotensive episodes single drops in our entitle are are literally killers so that brings us to the journal article bit translating into quality into teaching into education into protocols 
how should Epic be reflected in an EMS protocol from your standpoint? You know, what can MCHD listeners out there take from, you've got a big impactful journal article, uh, the Epic study with all these stats and tables and uh, this puts me to sleep, but there's some real life-saving pieces in there. So how do you as an EMS medical director take all that data and translate it into reality? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think oftentimes implementation can be the, the the toughest part of taking what we know in the literature and actually like making it a reality. And so there's a lot of obstacles to that. Um, I would say when we break down into these each and individual components or the H bombs, right? So starting with hypoxia, um, in Epic they actually threw everybody on a non rebreather. Uh, like their sats are 99% because the idea is, is, is not, we're trying to prevent them from falling. This is a pre-oxygenation step almost, right? It's, 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 we want to, we want their oxygenation to be maintained in the event that they, that they, that they head south. And so I think throwing them on the non-rebreather right off the get-go, might be the right call in, in, in most of these cases. For GCS of six, I agree totally. And yes, you can go back and listen to our hyperoxygenation podcast and, Yes, in prolonged situations, hyperoxia is 100% uh, cerebral toxic. It's bad. But that's not in the initial 15, 20, 30-minute time setting when we're still considering airway management, extrication, transport, initial evaluation. So we don't want to leave the oxygen saturation at 99% with a non-rebreather for 24 hours from patient contact to ICU admission, for example. But in our initial undifferentiated 20 minutes, we don't know if they're going to vomit. We don't know if they're going to hypoventilate because of brain injury. We don't know what their cerebral vasculature is going to do. Are they going to vasospasm? So many of these drop from an oxygenation standpoint. This is a situation where I would say we're in sort of a carbon monoxide delayed sequence situation where we're denitrogenating and pre-oxygenating. We're 100% FO2, 100% SATs as a goal probably isn't harmful in a very short transport scene time uh, time period. So I like that one. What else? Um, and then I think, you know, following the trend, right? It's it's getting on top of this stuff before before – we don't want somebody to get to 85% and or 80% and then we're like okay let me find my BVM and let me get my airway adjuncts and let me get ready to like we we want to be on top of that before we get to that point you know we always talk about how you know one set of vital signs is one set of vital signs in a moment of time and you got to sort of it's it's just sort of a snapshot we got to see if you want to see the whole picture of what's going on we got to trend these things out so we're documenting readings we're looking at at sort of their dynamic situation that's changing in terms of their oxygenation rapid progression to bvm i think is totally indicated um you know if you're in a system where you have really long transport times or you're worried about aspiration or you know depressed mental status and all that stuff and you want to proceed to intubation uh, i think that's that's reasonable as well if the patient's been adequately pre-oxygenated and resuscitated appropriately um, but you know going back to the basics it, it comes down to you know, using your airway adjuncts, jaw thrust, you know, all of that stuff that we, we sort of hammer home all the time. I think those things for these TBI patients from the oxygenation and ventilation standpoint really make a, make a big difference. Um, the next part, you know, I think really deals with sort of addressing the blood pressure situation. 
Um, and this is this is an area that to me that's it's sort of interesting. So uh, in Arizona, when they did the study, I think almost all the agencies were using crystalloid. I mean, they didn't really have whole blood or you know blood product resuscitation. Uh, at that time. And I know that, you know, the, the pendulum is swinging and there's some agencies now that are carrying blood, w which is great. I think we always talk about trauma patients. Um, we want to give trauma patients need blood. They don't, we talk about how crystalloid may not be the answer for those folks. And, you know, what do you do with these patients that are sort of these multi-system trauma patients with, you know, a pelvic fracture and a broken femur, and we're also suspected that they got a TBI. Classic teaching was always, or not classic, I'd say maybe in the last 10 years, we've talked more about sort of permissive hypotension. Maybe the answer is, is for these patients, I'm not, I don't want to upset all the trauma surgeons out there, but maybe we got to pick brain over something else, you know, and maybe for those patients, our target blood pressure might be a little higher. Um, Epic went with a cutoff of 90, but, and, and I think this is the data on this is very, very clear that higher blood pressure is probably better for these patients. Yeah, there's there's some recent data just in the last couple months that are, that's looking at where it is. Where is that ideal range? And we'll, we'll link these studies. And I didn't want this to be a journal club review. I wanted this to be a, a practical discussion. And I think we're there. But there is some more more compounding data off of Epic, off of this concept that it might be 120. It might be 130 and I would argue I don't want to get the surgeons on me either but if we save the spleen and expense of the brain from a neuro intact outcome functionality standpoint that's probably not terribly helpful so there may even be a role I'll be I'll be the, the heretic here for push dose epinephrine or potentially vasopressin there's some there's some relatively reasonable vasopressin and, and trauma literature over the last couple years. So maybe this is a situation where we have a lot more to learn and more information to gather. The oxygenation piece to me is sealed. We've got to oxygenate these people in the initial acute phase. We don't want to leave them at a PO2 of 500 for a couple of days. That's harmful. But initially we got to anticipate that they're going to drop and we got to prep for it. Blood pressure, it's still a little tough. I think that's where you're headed with this, and we have to balance the idea of permissive hypotension. Is there liver bleeding? I think it's way clearer in the patients that have true isolated head injuries, you know, blunt trauma to the head, you know, but falls, rollovers, uh, you know, multi-system assault. That gets a little more difficult. I would say, you know, speaking to the MCHD medics, if we have to push those, those patients – to me, the evidence is pretty clear. When the brain gets hypotensive, it doesn't like it. And if the patient's going to end up with a trach and a peg, I don't know if I want to sacrifice the, the brain for the spleen. So what about, I'm going to touch on it before we finish, because we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, and you mentioned intubation in these folks, and it becomes really dicey. I'd urge everybody to listen to the Airway Patency versus Protection podcast. We go into this in detail, but sort of the, the old, uh, one of the, I guess, the, the, the tablets from down on the EMS mountain, one of the, one of the commandments on that tablet was GCS less than eight intubate. And I would say that while it's obviously fraught with problems, we should edit it, not throw it out the window. And it, my thought is GCS less than eight, oxygenate and resuscitate. We should just change it up yeah. because 
We know that we got to oxygenate them. We know that we have to resuscitate them. Where that ends up with oxygenation and resuscitation, it can go different ways. If they're just lacking airway protection and they're oxygenating and ventilating fine, I would argue leave well enough alone because that's safer. If they're vomiting, if they've got, you know, sonorous breast sounds, soiled airway, you know, we've got clear obstruction and lack of patency, then they're probably going to need intubated. They're probably going to need definitive airway management. But it should really be a focus on, to me, on oxygenation and resuscitation and not necessarily intubation is the end goal. How do you feel about about? Oh, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, and I know I, I sound like a total epic fanboy right now, but in the epic study, they actually talked about how when they looked at their data, um, they had decreased rates of intubation because they were oxygenating these patients and ventilating them appropriately by, by other means. And so, you know, intub intubation is a procedure that's fraught with all sorts of high risk and oftentimes bad outcomes for patients. Patients, once they end up getting intubated, oftentimes will, will have all sorts of complications. And hey, if they need it, they need it. But if we can resuscitate them and stabilize them and, and, and not have to intubate them, I think that's, at least for me personally, is preferable. I'm going to sum that up in a statement and just make sure that the listeners are clear on this. In Epic, they saw with increased oxygenation and increased resuscitative efforts, decreased intubation rates and increased survival. So the idea that the more we intubate, the more intensive care we provide, the better our outcomes are, that does not always hold true. This is not me saying, hey, Patrick's saying medics can't intubate. It's not it. I think we in the emergency department, when you bring in out a hospital cardiac arrest, should leave the eye gel in longer. I, my personal belief is if we did that, our outcomes would be better. What happens when you deliver an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that got ROSC? Every ED doc pulls the eye gel to put it in an ET tube. To me, that's dumb. We don't need to innovate those patients right away. Same thing with the TBIs. If we're oxygenating and ventilating appropriately, we're resuscitating appropriately, and we're anticipating and preventing those drops of oxygenation, it doesn't matter how we do that. And when you introduce intubation in the picture, by most folks' definition, you're going to introduce sedative and paralytic. Very, very, very vasoactive medications. So you can do the intubation per perfectly. You can run the DSI perfectly. But what do we know about using sedative and paralytic in the ICU in all settings? Guess what those patients get about a quarter of the time, no matter what we do? Hypotensive. So it's probably a bad idea to introduce that into a TBI patient unless you absolutely have to. And that can be a really complex judgment call that's tough to put into a protocol. But it's worth thinking about and, and realizing that, hey, we got a good two-hand bag mass seal. We got MPs in place. We've got an entitled waveform of 41. Our blood pressure is 110. I know the GCS is six, but what's going to kill this patient's brain right now is fixed, and there's a net in place. Let's go to the hospital. And that's an entirely reasonable approach. That's not a minimalistic approach. That's an approach that takes best evidence into a boiled down field decision, which is the goal here. And Epic's the best and the largest in value, the best managed. I mean, it's just a really well done set of evidence that tells us what we should do with these patients. And so until something else comes along that's bigger or more solid from an evidence-based standpoint, that's what we're sort of bound to act on. So we should be 
fanboys of that and fangirls of that because it's best evidence. And it's also best evidence that's practical. And it's not, you know, it takes into account a patient group that we struggle with. So it sort of hits all the bullet points for this is probably something we should listen to. Where do you see it evolving in the next five to 10 years? Let's wrap it up. We're hitting close to the end of our time. We talked about higher blood pressures potentially as one for me. Where, where do you see things evolving? Um, I think, you know, finding ways to pay better attention to how we ventilate patients, I think is going to be a, a key player here. Um, you know, I've talked to some EMS systems that are switching to like PDBVMs for, you know, the, for, for ventilating all patients, including adults. Um, I think that will be definitely a, a, a big part of it. There's uh, some newer stuff that's the Epic folks have done with uh, with pe- with pediatric patients, which I think, you know, some of the some of the initial data supports that some of these principles are applying for kids for kids too. So I think there'll be a whole a whole bunch of studies that will kind of affect how we manage pediatric patients and resuscitate them sort of the same way. Yeah, and I and I agree with you. I think you know, going away from uh, or. I don't want to say never, but you know, going away from intubation as, as sort of the, 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 the standard all the time for these patients, I think that's going to be something that, that we shift our, our sort of focus on in the next couple of years. At least I hope to see that. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Al, for joining us. This is a topic that we could probably go on and on about, but really we wanted to hit the high points. If you're listening out there and you're not minding your TBI patients, this is definitely something that you know, can go back to your quality, to your education departments and say, hey, this is pretty straightforward stuff. This is not terribly difficult to interpret. It's not terribly complex to teach. And honestly, a TBI checklist is pretty easy to insert into your protocol set, whether it's, you know, a resuscitation bundle, whether it's a TBI anticipation uh, prevention checklist. There's lots of ways that you could do this. We've done this some in in our agencies. If you have questions about how we've approached TBI here at MCHD or you have uh, questions for Al, please email me at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. We'll have all of the references uh, that we've talked about linked in the show notes for y'all. As always, if you have questions, concerns, uh, ideas for future podcasts, hit us up at the podcast email as well. Leave us a like or review wherever you listen. Thanks, everybody, as always, for listening. And we'll be back for a future episodes soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.